Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to a Big Heads Media podcast. Tonight, we talk about some good old classic alien encounters. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. And welcome to episode two of season three of Small Town Secrets. And yeah, drinking coffee at one in the morning to keep me awake. Uh, let's get something prepped here, ready to go. All right. Yep, so like I said at the beginning of the show here, we're going to talk about a couple of just classic alien encounters. Uh, both of them, I think, have a, have a real kind of... 1950s sci-fi vibe to them. One of them did take place in the 50s. The other one took place in the 70s. But just, just the the drawings that were made and the encounter itself just really seems in that vein of just you know classic early contactee abduct you know all of that stuff. And so that's why I wanted to group these two guys together. We're going to be talking tonight about Flatwoods, West Virginia. And uh, the Flatwoods Monster, the Green Monster, the Green-Eyed Monster, the Braxton County Monster. Once again, one of those stories with a thing that has uh, many names, many, many names. And then we head over, or down, south, I suppose, very south, Gulf of Mexico south, to Pascagoula, Mississippi, and talk about the Pascagoula alien abductions. So that is what we have on tap for the show tonight. Of course, we're going to do some local headlines. We'll have our first update to a story that we've previously talked about. And like I said last week, I'm going to do the small town secret that I didn't do 
last episode uh, just because it was technical difficulties and I just I wasn't feeling great and I just decided to kind of get that episode done. But so far tonight, so good. Haven't had to mess with anything software-wise. Uh, feeling pretty good. So let's get 302 uh, in the bag so that we can all enjoy it. But before we do that, I'm going to play a promo from another Big Heads Media podcast. This one, a uh, true crime podcast called Over the Rainbow. So take a listen, check them out, and I'll be back uh, pretty soon. Hey there, Rainbow Warriors. I'm CJ, host of Beyond the Rainbow, true crimes of the LGBT. Q. I. Okay. My specialties do not include acronyms, but they do include true crime stories. Join me as I put my spin on some crimes that you might have already heard about, such as the Matthew Shepard story and the Pulse nightclub mass shooting in Orlando, Florida. I also touch upon some stories that you might not be so familiar with, such as the murder of transgender Gwen Araujo and the abusive relationship of Becky Reed and Lindsay Vox. Crimes against and by the LGBT community is nothing new, but it is a relatively new concept for a whole podcast to be dedicated to it. You can find Beyond the Rainbow True Crimes of the LGBT on almost all podcast apps. You can also interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Remember, it's not a crime to be gay, unless you're a murderer. So yeah, give them a listen, give them some support. Uh, I think they're actually pretty new. I don't even know if I have them followed on Twitter yet. I'm going to have to uh, take care of that. But let's get on to uh, our show, my show, our show. I guess it is all of our shows. I just do all the work. Um, and we're going to talk about, like I said, Flatwoods, West Virginia, and Pascagoula, Mississippi. Actually, Pascagoula may be the first uh, double city. Like, I know I haven't talked about it yet, but there's also this really weird, I guess you would call it a true crime case that I believe also happened there about uh, someone that used to break into people's houses and cut their hair. Happened back in, like, I think the 20s or the 30s or something. So this might not be the only time uh, that we talk about this this town, this little... Actually, it's really more of like a city, but a small city. So it counts. Damn it. And, uh, but nope, tonight, no haircutting. Tonight we're going to talk about aliens? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe something else. Let's just, let's just get into it. Let's talk about Flatwoods, West Virginia, and the Flatwoods Monster. Even though Flatwoods was incorporated in 1902, it shows up on maps dating as far back as 1873. It's a small place with a population of just over 270. And like Point Pleasant to the north, it's a small quiet place in West Virginia that harbors a strange tale. The tale starts like a sci-fi movie from the 50s. On September 12, 1952, brothers Fred and Ed May, which I'm going to go on a limb. I, I, I'm not sure, but I feel like they're probably twins. Uh, I've seen pictures of them and uh, their names rhyme, which usually goes towards them being being twins. But uh, Fred and Edward May and a smattering of friends were playing at a school playground. And at around 8.15 p.m., they watched something streak across the sky. The boys watched it come down on a hill on the nearby Bailey Fisher farm off of what is now Depot Road. Earlier that day, six UFOs, disc-shaped UFOs, were seen over the area. Four of them were tracked as far south as Alabama, and one of the discs was rumored to have come down in nearby Gassaway, West Virginia. I believe, I hope I'm not mixing up encounters, but that it was reported as, someone reported it as a plane had crashed, and, you know, the police go out there, the fire department goes out there, and they can't find anything. They can't find any wreckage, they don't find a plane, they don't find a crash site, they don't find anything. Uh, the inquisitive group of boys ran off, determined to find out what the thing was. Ed and Fred May's home was actually on Depot Road. So because of this, the boys stopped and told their mom, whose name was Kathleen, what they saw. 
So, like, to get to this hill, they literally had to run by their house and stopped and told their mom about it. She decided to go up the hill with them. So the pack of young men, Kathleen May, and a neighborhood dog started their trek up the hill. Before reaching the top of the hill, the group came across an orange pulsating light and what they described as an egg. This egg gave off a hissing sound and was surrounded by a strange foreboding fog. Everyone stayed away from the fog. However, the dog ran straight in to investigate. The dog let out a howl before turning tail and running back in the town where it apparently vomited and then died. Back at the hillside, things were about to get even stranger. Two beams of light emerged from the fog. One of the May boys fired his flashlight in the direction of the beams, and what came through the fog was described by Ed and Fred as a large 10 to 12 foot mechanical thing with a spade-shaped head and claw-like hands. The beams of light were shooting from its eyes. They maintained it was some sort of machine, or perhaps some sort of vehicle being driven by something. They estimated the height due to a large tree it stood by, which has since died and rotted away. So yeah, this is very interesting. I got this a lot of this information from the Small Towns Monsters uh, documentary, which I have linked to in the show notes that you can go check out. You can, I think you can rent it right now on Amazon for a couple of bucks, and it's a pretty good one. It's got, I think, one of the best intros to any uh, any of their documentaries that they've ever done. All of them great, but man, the intro to that one is just really well pulled off and just great information. And and the May, the 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 brothers, you know, they kind of maintain that this thing wasn't like a creature. It wasn't a being. It was a machine. It was a it was mechanical. It was a robot. And there's a couple of interesting pictures that they show in the doc, and I've kind of seen online that kind of show that it was it might have been a shell or some sort of like you know, Gundam, if you will, uh, that had, had something inside of it, piloting it, and, you, you know, those weren't eyes, those were some sort of portholes. But I digress. Uh, everyone stood in awe of the thing. Soon after emerging, it started hovering towards them. That's right, it seemed to hover or float off the ground. It had no feet. Its whole body was similar to that of a missile. Uh, if you see a lot of pictures of it, it kind of looks like it has a skirt, but... Some of them do kind of draw it very straight and angular, but most of them have this weird kind of skirt to it and that it just hovered or maybe had little jets. Uh, as it came towards the group, they ran off down the hill back to the safety of their homes. Ed later surmised that it might have been some sort of sentinel sent to the guard would have landed on top of the hill. So they didn't reach the top of the hill. They didn't reach the big kind of light that they saw. They tried to get up there. They got to kind of a gully. Uh, near the top, but not, and then they ran into this thing. So it's always been, I believe Ed, it might have been Fred, but I'm pretty sure it was Ed, uh, kind of theorized that this thing was some sort of guard, some you know something to keep people away from the, the big craft that had landed up on the top of the hill. The Mays and their friends weren't the only ones that witnessed something that night. A farmer at a neighboring farm watched a bright orange-red light atop the hill. He observed it grow smaller and smaller, dimmer and dimmer, until after about 20 minutes, it vanished. The Skolinskis were driving down Depot Road, I think. They were driving down Depot Road. And at the time, I don't believe it was called Depot Road. It was named that later. When they, too, were approached by a red and green colored terror that was the Braxton County Monster as it made its way in front of their car across the road. The next day, the National Guard arrived headed by Captain Dale Levitt, they searched the area and actually found a few interesting things. At the top of the hill, they discovered a circular impression, about 20 feet in diameter, embedded into the ground. Around the impression, Captain Levitt himself discovered an unidentified grease, in quotation marks. He even got some of it on his fingers. Braxton County, the county in which the town of Flatwood resides, has had a history of UFOs zooming across the skies dating back to the 30s. There's a rather interesting story of a flying disc crashing on a farm in Braxton County in 1944. The farmer discovered the wreckage and the odd metal that it was made out of, 
and not knowing what to do with it, he simply buried it in a gully with the rest of his trash. And really, to me, that's almost a more interesting story. Like, that makes me want to go to Braxton County and find out the truth behind that story and then uh, go digging for some UFO wreckage. That would be... That would be fantastic. That would be great. Uh, like many of these stories, there is more than one possible ex explanation for it. Such as, was it indeed some sort of alien or machine meant to guard a UFO as the maze uh, postulates? Could it possibly have just been a large owl, as so many skeptics has put have put forth? So they say, a lot of people say that, it was just, you know, like a big barn owl up in the tree and just, you know, it was a foggy night and everyone just mistook an owl for this thing. But they always say an owl. Like, so what was it? Swamp gas and an owl? You know, the Mothman's an owl. Everything, everything weird in West Virginia is always brushed off as it's just a big owl. I don't think it's always just a big owl. Uh, in the 1950s, the Cold War was hot. That's a joke. Laugh. Could this have been some sort of secret missile or craft from either the Russians or the Americans? So that's kind of another interesting idea, which I think would be just as good of a story as if it turned out to be like a tested, some sort of tested plane, some sort of missile, something that just went haywire that we made and, you know, you know, maybe they got everyone to go along with it and... This is the, you know, this is the, the cover story, like kind of the reverse psychology of like, oh, if we if we make everyone think uh, that that it was a UFO, we can really, you know, using misinformation opposite of what normally people think of. But now I'm just kind of rambling, just kind of riffing, riffing on this idea. I guess in order to do that, you'd have to get like a bunch of people together and make sure they keep their story straight for all of these years. So, I don't know. I just don't know. I feel like if it was something like that, there would have been a lot more going on than just the National Guard coming in. If it was some sort of uh, screwed-up American project or down Russian thing, it would have been a much bigger likelihood. It would have cordoned off that area. They would have taken it. You wouldn't have had the National Guard. You'd have the Army. You'd have the, you know, you'd have the military, the government. Everybody would be in there uh, cleaning up cleaning up that mess so i don't know it's a fun one but i don't know how much water it really holds but you know like so many of these other stories like that we may never know and if you ever find yourself in flatwoods make sure to pick up some flatwoods monster figures and get your picture taken sitting in that big throne they have and uh i have i'll put a picture of it in the show notes and probably on the old instagrammy they do they have like this wooden chair it's very large that's why i call it a throne and it is in the shape of the flatwoods monster it's got the head on it and then its arms are you know the arms of the chair and you can sit in it and it's you know nice little tourist nice little tourist thing to go see um i know they've got kind of a museum dedicated to it they've got some merch for it i don't know if they do like a big festival i don't believe they do um you know like the mothman festival but them a lot like like Point Pleasant, they in, in recent years they've really come to embrace their strange story and you know, instead of kind of reeling from it and kind of trying to, you know, just bury it, they have really tried to make it something, make it about the town and turn it into into something that is what put them it's what put Flatwoods on the map. And, you know, embrace it. Make it yours and don't don't run away from it. And just like I said, just like Point Pleasant, they're really doing that and I like to see that, you know, a lot of these small towns are kind of embracing their strangeness. The next the next story will also have a little bit of that going on, but you know, the Flatwoods monster is great. Like I have seen so much great artwork about it. Like um, you know, Egerton Puck who I've talked about on the show before does these great anatomy drawings of cryptids and she you know, she did a great Flatwoods monster. In fact, I have the original artwork for her Flatwoods monster drawing. 
So I have it framed. I've got a print on one side and I have the original artwork on other and then I have another smaller original doodle of it kind of in between them. And it's, it's one of my favorite pieces that she's ever done, but I've seen so many like, some of them are really doofy, some of them are really well done, and some of them are just, you know, actually kind of terrifying. Um, you know, it's one of those one of those things where, you know, just like the Mothman, you know, uh, people have interpreted it in many different ways. And it's a story that lives on older than Mothman. And, whoa, I talked long enough for my screensaver to go on. That never happens. But, yeah, that is... <laughs> That is uh, the Braxton County monster, the Flatwoods monster. So let's uh, let's come back real quick. I'm going to take a little break, I think. And then we're going to talk about Pascagoula, Mississippi, and uh, some aliens and some abductions and fishing and all of that. So stay tuned. The small city of Pascagoula, Mississippi is located in Jackson County at the very southern end of the state, right next to the Gulf of Mexico. The city has a population of 22,392. And one night in 1973, two of its citizens had a very interesting fishing trip. On October 11th of 1973, two men Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker Jr. decided to go fishing. They were employees at a shipyard. Hickson was Parker's foreman. After work, they made their way to a fishing spot marked by an abandoned boat ramp and fished until long after the sun went down. When night came, so did a strange blue flashing light. The two men watched as the light came closer and closer to shore, closer to them. As it approached, they could make out a 30-foot-long craft with a dome on top. It then began making a zipping noise, and then what could only be described as a hatch opened, and three beans exited the craft. The beans were humanoid with crab-like hands and bullet-shaped heads. On their heads were three pointy protrusions where you would expect to see ears and a nose. They did not appear to have eyes. The aliens much like their spacecraft hovered off the ground. Without warning, both men became paralyzed and were grabbed by the aliens and dragged into the ship. Once inside, the two men were separated. Hickson stated that they were examined by what he could only describe as a quote-unquote big eye. I think kind of a mechanical thing that made mechanical buzzing noises. Parker has recently stated that he was examined by a female with uh, humanoid figures. So... There's a great interview on uh, Open Minds UFO Radio, which I've linked to the show notes that you so you can go and uh, take a listen to it. But he just he kind of talks about how he just had a feeling that this being was of the female persuasion, and it had humanoid features. It had eyes and ears and nose and all of that stuff. So, judging by that, I'm going to say that what they saw outside, the things that came out of the craft, uh, what he calls the ugly ones, was maybe it had to be some sort of kind of, like, space suit. Maybe they, these, whatever these are, couldn't, uh, for some reason, breathe our atmosphere, so what what that was was some sort of uh, suit, and that they, these things actually probably looked more humanoid than what a lot of people originally thought. He goes on to tell that she inserted her fingers into his nose, and perhaps left something inside. After the abduction, they were taken from the craft and placed back on the ground. After they came to, they ran to the sheriff's department and gave them their story. The men were questioned and questioned, but never broke from their story. Both men were checked for radiation, as they did say they felt ill after the event, but nothing harmful was found. Parker did have a strange puncture mark in his arm that had not previously been there. The next few days at work became a nightmare for them. Somehow, the media had gotten wind of the event. Thousands of reporters and believers flocked to the small town in search of a story, or perhaps aliens themselves. The media became so overwhelming that the shipyard Parker and Hickson worked at offered to pay them 
to take a couple weeks off until it all died down. A few days after the incident, Dr. J. Allen Hynek himself came to investigate the incident. And uh, in that interview, it's kind of funny. He says that he wanted to go check out the scene, but the grass on the shore become so thick that they, they couldn't even get back there and they all just kind of gave up. Uh, the men had very different reactions to what happened to them. Hickson relished in the attention and the story, telling anyone who would listen. He even wrote a book about it in 1983. Parker didn't want to talk about it. He, could, he would quit days later and find another job. Eventually, he moved away, only recently moving back to the area. However, in recent years, Parker has changed his tune somewhat. He recently wrote a book as well, in order to put his, his accounts on the record. He will be doing interviews and conferences for the next year or so, and then he says he'll be done with the whole thing, and he's going off the grid. The story doesn't end there. In 1993, Parker went under hypnosis, administered by Bud Hopkins. Parker did this because he had been struggling with some missing time. He would find out later that in 1973, like later in the year, he would go fishing again, this time by himself, and he left at noon. He didn't want to be out after dark, but found he had fallen asleep, quotation marks. He woke up and it was dark. In fact, it was 4 a.m. the next morning. Under hypnosis, he would find out that he had been abducted again, where they had come back and possibly removed the thing from his nose. Well, when he woke up, he also had blood on him that he assumed was his and maybe some of the creatures. Uh, Hickson would pass away in 2011. Parker has moved back to the area to a neighboring town. So he doesn't live in Pascagoula anymore. I think he said he lived like, like 10 miles away. So he's still very close to it. And in March of 2019, the city of Pascagoula erected a historical marker in honor of the abduction. So very recently. Uh, once again, embracing their strange history. Uh, also in recent times, other witnesses have come forward. A pool player named Joey Nielsen and some buddies were on their way to Louisiana on that same night. They were driving down US-90, kind of in between Pascagoula and Biloxi, I believe they said, when they saw a, a uh, beach-sized bright blue light. This ball, came this ball of light came very close to the car and for 10 minutes made buzzing noises. Like, so it just kind of followed them and made these buzzing and cracking noises. Uh, Nielsen said it was almost as if it were taking pictures. So that's kind of the impression that he got of the thing. Rosie Nail, I think, or Neil, it might be, it's about kind of funny, worked at a garment factory in Bruce, Mississippi back in 1973. Even though she was 300 miles away, she also saw bright blue lights that night. After work, she had gone to a friend's house, and they were outside having a cigarette when she saw what she thought was a falling star. However, that's not what it was. The blue star was moving across the sky, and then a smaller blue star shot out of it. The larger of the lights started to descend and became larger and larger. It terrified her as well as every dog in town, as they started barking at the object. Then, it all seemed to reverse itself. The large ball went back up into the sky, and the smaller one rejoined it. So, you know, it's it's taken a lot of time, but there are more, you know, and I, I think there's even a couple of other accounts that I'm not, I didn't put in here of people saying they also saw uh, blue lights that night in and around that area. So, if you find yourself in Pascagoula, Mississippi, be sure to have a look at their new historical monster. And also, I hear the fishing is good. And there you have it, a couple of classic uh, UFO tales for this episode. So, uh, no, once again, I'm sorry, no new music. I'm working on it. Uh, last couple of weeks of work have been very hectic, very busy. We're transitioning into some new projects and ending some old ones and some stuff, so... I haven't had as much time as I would kind of like. You know, I come home and I've got other stuff to do and to work on music and all that. But I'm really going to try hard to get something for next episode out. Hopefully some new background music and hopefully like a new kind of uh, track in the middle 
uh, the intermission, as I like to call it. But I'm going to play uh, the Dark Desert song, the oldie but the goodie, and then we're going to come back and we're going to do the local headlines. All right, so our first story, like I said, this is our first update uh, from another news story that we did, I don't know, a couple few episodes ago, because I think it happened back back in December. Uh, this is the Welsh bird mystery solved. Uh, if you remember, I re- I did this story, I report, I report, I did this story about just all these birds that had just died, like, I don't know what it is, like 1,500 birds or something, they were all starlings, and they were all just dead in this park. So this is uh, kind of an update. They think they've figured it out. This is from Coast to Coast AM by Tim Banal. Uh, Welsh bird mystery solved, like I said. Authorities in Wales appear to have solved the mystery of a bizarre incident last month in which hundreds of starlings suddenly seemed to drop dead in the middle of the road. The strange case occurred back on December 10th near the village of Bododern on the Welsh island of Anglesey and sparked headlines around the world. At the time, various theories were floated for what would have caused the apocalyptic-looking event, including the possibility that the birds were somehow poisoned. Thankfully, it turns out there was a less nefarious and far more prosaic explanation for for why the starlings perished. In a series of tweets provided to the public with an update on the case, Rob Taylor of the North Wales Rural Crime Department explained that 35 of the approximately 200, okay, maybe not 1,500, dead birds found on the pavement were collected for examination. All of the remains, he wrote, showed severe internal trauma from impact. With that in mind, authorities believe that the starlings flew into the pavement and died upon impact. Likely while attempting to evade uh, an evasive maneuver to escape a bird of prey. If this sounds familiar, that could have... That could be because this is the same situation that unfolded in Canada back in September of 2018. Uh, while Tyler cautioned that a full body, a full toxicology had not been received, so a final theory cannot be confirmed. He wrote that the department is quite sure that the proposed hypothesis is what happened. And so there you go. Not a, uh, not probably not a big paranormal event, but uh. An explanation, nonetheless. So this next one actually is from a Houston, a Houston suburb, I believe. 
not exactly a small town, but it was kind of a slow news week. But this is too good of a story not to talk about. Uh, they Can't Let It Go, Haunted Elsa Doll, returns to Houston family after being thrown out multiple times. This is from uh, click2houston.com uh, by Brianna Edwards. Houston. On Christmas of 2013, a Houston area girl was gifted an Elsa doll and all was well. Until it wasn't. The doll recited phrases from the movie Frozen and sang Let It Go when a button on its necklace was pressed. For two years it did that in English, Mother Emily Madonia said. In 2015, it started doing it it started doing it alternating between Spanish and English. There wasn't a button to change these, it was just random. The family has owned the doll for more than six years and never changed its batteries. Has Frozen been around for six years? The mother says the doll would randomly begin to speak and sing even with it switched off. In December of 2019, the family decided to get rid of the doll. However, Elsa wasn't going to let the family go. Despite being thrown out in the trash, the family found the doll inside of a bench in their living room weeks later. The kids insisted they didn't put it there, and I believe them because they wouldn't have dug through the garbage outside, Madonia said. Elsa completely stopped operating English and began only speaking and singing in Spanish. Once again, the family attempted to throw out the Elsa doll. Madonia's husband double-bagged the doll and placed it in the bottom of the garbage can to be taken away on trash day. The family traveled and forgot about it, but when they returned, their daughter found their old friend outside their house. Okay, guys, seriously, we need help. To recap, for those of you who have not been following our Elsa doll, doll saga, Matt threw it away weeks later, weeks ago, and then we found it inside a wooden bench, Madonia wrote on Facebook. Okay, so we were weirded out and tightly wrapped in its own garbage bag and put that garbage bag inside another garbage bag filled with other garbage and put it in the bottom of our garbage can underneath a bunch of other bags of garbage and wheeled it out to the curb and it was collected on garbage day. I said garbage a lot of times. Great, right? We went out of town, forgot about it. Totally, uh, Aurelia says. Mom, I saw the Elsa doll again in the backyard. Help us get rid of this haunted doll. When asked if she believed a prank was being pulled, Madonia said, the doll has some marker on her forehead for my daughter coloring on it over the years, so I know that the doll that reappeared was the original one and not a replacement. Most logical thinkers believe it's a prank, but I don't understand how or when it was done, especially because the garbage truck had taken it away. The family has made a final attempt to get rid of their daughter's old toy, but this time Elsa isn't going into the unknown. The doll, it was mailed without return address to a family friend in Minnesota. If the doll comes back, I might have to open my mind to do some more of uh, the supernatural solutions, Madonia said. Luckily for Madonia, the doll is received by her Minnesotan friend, Chris Hogan, who shared a final update on his Facebook. And now for the rest of the story. She made it to Minnesota, Minnesota and it was taped to the brush, brush guard of my Jeep. If anything weird happens, I'm welling her into the steel pipe and sinking it into the lake in the woods, Hogan wrote. Uh, Madonia has also had an, expl an explanation post answering questions she's received since the story went vile. Uh, you can read it below. I'll link to the show notes if you want to read her update. And there's also uh, some videos of there of it speaking and talking in Spanish. And uh, yeah, I'm reminded of the great Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode about the Krusty doll, uh, which I think is probably like most of those uh, uh, Twilight Zone parody uh, with a little, I think there's a Cape Fear parody mixed in there too, but that's what it makes me think of, but it's a, it's a weird story it's a fun story and uh, we're going to finish up with a good old Yowie encounter uh, this one from the Daily Mail uh, is there a byline on this? I don't see a byline on this one at all so we're just going to go for it. Uh, shocked Yowie enthusiast shared footage of a mysterious creature which threw something at him. A mechanic has shared footage after claiming to have had something thrown at him by an unidentified creature in dense bushland. Mark uh, Dimtriow, I believe, something like that, was cleaning out a bucket near the Imbil State Forest in southeast Queensland. Once again, not a small town. Once again, slow news me. While gold prospecting when he claimed something was thrown at him. 
Something large was thrown towards me after taping the bottom of the bucket to clean it. After tapping the bottom of the bucket to clean it. I had a feeling I was being watched as the brush went silent for a few minutes, he wrote. Then there's some pictures. I'm going to scroll down to the rest of the article. So, what is... So, this is what I filmed. It moves to the left after I moved. Sorry about the video, as I was watching it as well, so I kept dropping my phone down. It's large and black. I really hope you can see it. I was in the Imbo State Forest. After taking out his phone and filming the dense area of bush, he can be heard trying to coax whatever he sees out of the bush. I can see you looking at me, he is heard saying as he continues to film the thick scrub. Uh, Mr. Dimtrow, however, then tried to encourage whatever he was seeing to come out. He said it... He said it was a large log which was thrown in his direction, which made him feel uh, uneasy. It threw a log towards me and was looking at me when I moved closer. It moved, but was still there, he claimed. The video immediately got attention on social media users, with many asking Mr. Dimtru what he thinks he saw. And I know I've pronounced his name uh, many different ways, so I'm, one of them is going to be right. No idea what it was, but it didn't mind watching me, he wrote. I was trying to film and look with a pick in my hand as it was a bit worrying. I left straight away. He said he plans to go back to the same spot and to try and find any evidence of what it was, including footprints. A number of social media users were also quick to comment on the video. What do you think it might have been? Are you sure it wasn't just dark? Just a dark bit of bushland, like a shaded area so you couldn't see anything really? One user asked. It threw a log at you. What? But you sure it didn't fall from a tree above? Another asked. Mr. Dimtrow conceded it was possible that the log had fallen from a tree. I hope it just fell from a tree. It's one of my favorite spots for orchid picks, and I want to keep going there, he said. Cryptozoological researcher Gary Opit has heard tales of Yowie sightings in the same Imbel State Forest. Another woman told ABC that her friend saw Yowie in the same region in 2014. It was a very good friend of mine, and I do believe everything she tells me, and she was also with another friend of who I know quite well, and who is a school teacher, and neither wants to be named for fear of being ridiculed, she told the publication. So, uh, always a good Yowie, always a good Yowie story to be had, and that has been this week's local headlines. I'm going to hear a boom, and I'm going to come back, and we're going to talk about some small town conspiracy stuff, um, a murdered police officer, and... We'll finish up this episode. So, like I said, this this small this uh, your small town secrets is going to be a little bit different. This is one I wanted to get to last week, but I just uh, it was kind of involved. It's still very involved, and I just you know I didn't want to get to it, so I just saved it to talk about it this week. So once again, only one. And uh, But it comes from Bardtown, Kentucky. I'm going to first read a news story I found uh, talking about it. And this is uh, from Wave3.com. Bardstown officer Jason Ellis's death still unsolved six years later by Taylor Durden. Not Tyler Durden, so not the guy from Fight Club. Taylor Durden. Bardstown, Kentucky. Six years after Bardstown police officer Jason Ellis was murdered on his way home from work, his family members continue a somber tradition. One by one, they place white paper bags with blue candle lights along the Bluegrass Parkway at exit 34, where Ellis exited around 3 a.m. on May 25, 2013. Ellis stopped to clear debris from the exit ramp when he was shot multiple times and died. He was a canine officer, but his dog wasn't with him that morning. Every year, his family members and friends light the ramp he took home to remember him. We do this every year to keep his memory alive, Nathan Phillips, Ellis' brother-in-law said, to celebrate his life. Life. Family and law enforcement officers gather to drive, drive the same route Ellis took. The procession starts at the Barstown Police Department, goes past exit 34 on the Bluegrass Parkway where Ellis was shot, and ends at the cemetery where he is bar- buried. Phillips said after 60 years, it's still on his mind all the time. It's an everyday thing, honestly, he said. You think about it every day. It doesn't get any better because we have nothing, no answers whatsoever. No arrests have been made in the case. 
the FBI is offering a $50,000 reward for information leading to the identification, arrest, and conviction of the individual or individuals responsible for Ellis's death. He was just such a great guy, and it's hard on us to know what happened to him, because you know, we miss him every day, Phillips said. Barstown police officers walk and work and see memorials and photos of Ellis every day. They, too, can't believe it's been six years. We try to do our job the way Jason would have wanted it done, as if he were here, Barstown Officer Michael Clark said. Clark was working with Nelson County Sheriff's Office at the time of Ellis' death. He and Ellis graduated from the academy together. Jason wasn't just an officer, he was a friend, Clark said. More importantly, he would be known as a father and a husband. He would want to be known as a father and a husband. So that is just a little kind of updated story on what is going on. And this guy sent me a couple of blog posts, very long, very involved blog posts that set out a possible scenario to what may have happened to this young man. And, you know, it involves some kind of uh, drug dealings and maybe some some crooked sheriffs and stuff like that. But there's a lot of characters involved in uh, in this story and what people have dug up or what this person has dug up. And I, you know, like I said, I've just, with work and everything and just all, all of this, this would be like an entire episode if I were to sit down. But I did find a couple of interesting points about it. And I think it's uh, uh, something that needs to be looked into and something that needs to be needs to be solved. But I'm going to link to all that in the show notes. So if anyone wants to dig into uh, uh, a possible small town conspiracy and uh, an unsolved murder, then I'll, I will uh, give you the resources to do that. So I would like to thank uh, Richard Caldwell from Bardstown, Kentucky, who sent in those original, bo- original blog posts. And uh, we'll, see, we'll see what happens with that uh, on down the road. So... That's going to be the only one I think I'm going to do today. Hopefully we'll have we'll get back up on that and have a couple more coming in. Uh, I want to line up a couple of interviews with some people too, so we'll get cracking on that as well. But that's uh, your small town secrets for this week and pretty much the end of episode two. So thanks everyone once again for listening. Uh, thanks for continuing to listen. Everything has really been great. Getting a lot of traction on social media. Starting to see more engagement on everything, which is really great. Starting to see listens kind of go up, which has been fantastic. So, you know, that's episode 3.02. Let's plug everything. Uh, Go to stscast.com. There are so many things that you can do there. Show notes are there. Uh, Pictures are there for each and every episode. So if you're looking for a new story I've done, if you're looking for a book that I've used for the show, a movie... You'll find it there, everything you need. Uh, if you have a uh, small town secret to share with me, there are uh, many ways to get it to me at stscast.com. At the bottom of the main page, there's an email form that you can fill out and send me in your story or your question or whatever. Uh, you can get at me on Reddit. At the bottom of the page, the very bottom of the page, there's kind of all the links to the social media to you know iTunes, Android, Spotify, all that stuff is down at the bottom. Uh, so there's a Reddit link. You can go to the subreddit for the show and leave a story there. You can get at me on social media. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter. That is at STScast. Facebook is at STScast. And uh, Instagram is at STScast.gram. So there are those. Uh, also on the site, you can... Uh, check out the merch store if you want a shirt, you want a sticker, all that great stuff. We can get it to you. And yeah, oh, also, before I get out of here, I just want to let everyone know I have been making my way through Tobias Whalen's book, The Lake Michigan Mothman High Strangeness in the Midwest. Uh, I just got it at the beginning of the week. And since I've been researching for the show, I haven't had a chance to just sit down and read it one large lump. I've read probably about 50, 60 pages of it so far, but so far, so good. Uh, a lot of it takes place in Chicago, so it's not really like uh, material that I would for the show, but just a, a book that you want to read, and a new paranormal book, it, and it's, it's really hitting the spot. Just full of encounters, and uh, he had a lot of, 
He was kind of working alongside Lon Strickner from Phantoms and Monsters, which I've talked about on this show numerous times. So if you're looking for uh, a good book, then yeah, Lake Michigan Mothman is one to be checking out. And I just wanted to throw that in there real quick. I'm having a good time with it. But that's all for the show. Uh, next week, got a pretty good idea what I'm doing. I've started this new thing where uh, whenever I get an idea for what I want it, an episode to be, I go ahead and I make the artwork for it because I'm too lazy to want to go back and change the text on the artwork if I decide to change the order of the show. So it's really helped me kind of keep everything straight. So I have a 99% chance of what I know next week is going to be, but just in case, I'm not going to tell you, just in case I do change it. Um, but until the next episode, remember, every town has a secret. What is yours? up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.